0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, November 16th, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. Is the Federal Reserve really independent? And are the measures of that agency's independence even credible? Cato Institute senior fellow Jerry O'Driscoll at the Cato Institute's 30th Annual Monetary Conference said rumors of Federal Reserve independence have been greatly exaggerated. People say that the Federal Reserve is independent, but... I don't
1: think anyone really believes that anymore, do you? I don't believe it in the sense that the, either the technical literature claims they're independent or that the Fed itself would like people to believe they're independent. Uh, and independence of course means independence of political influence. And the most direct way that they prevents them from being independent is when governments run large deficits it's impossible for a central bank not to what economists call monetize that by buying some of it at least. Currently they're buying 70 – over 70 percent of US treasury uh, debt obligations are being purchased by the Fed Uh, and that's – no central bank can be independent if they're doing that. Trevor Burrus And that is
0: to some extent endogenous to the system. That is because you have huge deficits which
1: are enabled by a central bank that can print money. If there's a central bank and a fiat currency system, then it enables governments, as you say, to run deficits and history suggests they will.
0: Now, uh, in terms of the specific periods of history when we see the the Federal Reserve acting independently and not independently, what are some of the the big highlights that people should uh, should think about?
1: Well, let me first answer by saying the, the Fed has only been around since 1913, but if we look at the Bank of England, a much longer history that justifies what I'm about to say. Under the gold standard, uh, once the British government did some other reforms that made their economy really an open free market economy in the 19th century, uh, under a gold standard, then the Bank of England was politically independent because it had to protect the gold standard. And this did, uh, prevented it from doing things that we call discretion. Uh, when the Fed first came in, of course, we were on the gold standard. But almost immediately, we're in World War I, and the Fed financed the uh, deficits being run to engage in the war. But back in the 20s, there was the 1920s. There was a return to normalcy, and the Fed went back managing the gold standard. Unfortunately, the rest of the world uh, really didn't go back on the gold standard as it had existed, and that broke down, and we then. And, and, and I'm simplifying, of course, it was only one factor, but we did get the Great Depression. The U.S. went off the gold standard onto FDR. Uh, then we came to the war, so no central bank, as we've already established, acts independently in a war. In 1951, there was an accord between the Fed and the Treasury, known as the Accord, that the Fed would no longer be required to support the price of U.S. Treasury securities, which is, in effect, pegging interest rates. In the 1950s, the Fed acted like it was independent, but there were no deficits running. There was no test of it. As soon as we got the Kennedy, Johnson, Keynesian macroeconomic policies and then the Vietnam War, the Fed stopped acting like it was independent, even though the same man was chairman of the Fed has been chairman in the 1950s.
0: So even in that period, you can't clearly say that the Fed was acting independently because it's its actions still depended uh, to a large extent on the fiscal policies of the federal government of that time.
1: Of course, there's no central bank that can't run a sound monetary policy if there's no significant federal deficits. That's the only real test. Okay. So in the 60s and, uh, and early 70s, what were we faced with? Well, we were faced with a Fed that started uh, to uh, – engage in easier monetary policy, increase the money supply. We started to get inflation. So, and then Nixon went off the uh, gold, uh, closed the gold window, as they said, exited the Bretton Woods system, which was the last link to gold, as tenuous as it was. Now, uh, you you
0: talk about leaving the gold standard uh, as a matter of fact right. uh, having occurred under FDR. Absolutely. I don't, I don't think a lot of people appreciate the fact that uh, leaving the gold standard Uh, in in that time period was when that actually happened. Can you detail exactly why that was?
1: We left the gold standard in two stages. The first one is he outlawed – FDR outlawed the holding of gold by American citizens and he uh, abrogated what are known as the gold clauses in debt contracts where where the uh, creditor could demand payment in gold. And the Supreme Court upheld that. People are outraged by Supreme Court decisions today, but that has got to be one of the most outrageous Supreme Court decisions, at least in commercial law. Um, and then that precipitated a breakdown in the global gold standard, and we got a system of national currencies. Uh, Bretton Woods after World War II was an attempt to go back to what I called a ghost of gold, US linked to gold, linked the dollar to gold and all of the currencies that were in this system linked to the US dollar. That was a tenuous connection, but it actually in retrospect did constrain the Fed somewhat because once it went off link uh, sorry Nick Nixon closed the gold window, go and and we were off the vestiges of the gold standard. That's when we got most of our our inflation all right. Now,
0: speaking of inflation, you say that Paul Volcker went a significant distance toward sort of restoring some credibility to the Federal Reserve. Was part of that just the fact that he seemed to have a clear uh, marching orders, if you will? Was I mean, was it, was it clear that I – mean, let me rephrase that. Uh, you say that Paul Volcker went a significant distance to restoring uh, a great deal of credibility uh, for the Federal Reserve. Was part of that that – He's had enormous buy-in from both, I think, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan to
1: deal with inflation to the exclusion of of other goals? uh, He was almost forced on Carter because inflation had gotten out of control and our allies were furious at us. And so Carter felt he had to bring in a credible figure. Now, Volcker's actions, uh, he began the policy that ripened under Reagan of, clamping down on the money supply growth and uh, allowing interest rates to rise. But he really – it was pivotal that Reagan came in and was sold on the necessity of ending inflation, not just stopping its acceleration but ending it uh, by George Shultz and the other economic advisors, Milton Friedman, who said, if you don't end inflation, your administration will be a disaster. So Reagan backed it. I don't know whether he encouraged it or simply backed it but Volker knew Reagan had his back. He, ra- he raised interest rates when unemployment was 8 percent, OK? He raised interest rates and he did break the back of inflation. But that was not acting independently. He was independent of perhaps congressional will but he was dependent on the support of the president was a great policy, but it doesn't fit into an independent story at all yeah i mean it's it seems clear that uh,
0: uh, needing the president's backing in pursuing a particular policy does no. not does not speak to independence no it does not now uh, in the greenspan years, of course uh, he has a bit of a, a muddled record. Can you talk about independence in the greenspan era?
1: Yes, I mean greenspan inherited volcker's mantle and and mostly continued uh, Volcker policies. Um, and and then going into the 90s, you have the Clinton administration take over, and the Clinton administration starts cutting back the deficits. And then at, at the end, I think in the last year, ran a surplus. But in any case, deficits were really coming down. Now, they really had started to come down under Reagan, but Clinton continued that policy and focused on it. And that made Greenspan's... Uh, job much easier for all the reasons we've just discussed and he pursued a good monetary policy. But then the dot-com bubble – well, first – I mean there was the 2000 thing but that was a blip. Then the dot-com bust came and in 2000 and he began cutting interest rates aggressively. And then uh, 9-11 came and he cut aggressively some more but he kept them down. He kept them down in the 1% to 2% range. As, as it's been described, too low for too long. And whatever good he did, he then created, set the stage for this housing bubble. And uh, that really uh, ended in, well, the housing prices peaked in 06 and they began down in 07 and, and those who were observant knew we were already in trouble in 07, but certainly by 08, everybody knew we were in trouble. Everybody, by the way, except for Chairman Ben Bernanke, who kept whistling past his graves most of 2008 until the Lehman collapse. You say that the uh, empirical
0: measures of central bank independence to the extent that they exist are inaccurate and they don't really provide a measure of –
1: Independence. Yes. My colleague and co-author Tom Cargill has worked more on this aspect of the issue and he has an important article in the economics journal called Economic Inquiry in which he goes through the methodology of these empirical studies and shows that uh, first of all their their idea of what constitutes independence is flawed. Their identification of which central banks fit that definition is uh, confused. They're, uh, they're not right. It's almost sometimes – and they don't recognize that central banks moving in out of this measure of independence. And then third, that the empirical technique is is not uh, powerful enough to give you a definitive answer either way. It's a very thoroughgoing analysis of an entire empirical literature. And
0: I, I think for me at least, the bottom line here is that you can't simply declare that an institution is independent.
1: Of course not. Um, You have to have a set of institutions, laws, rules that make that credible, that make it factually correct. And I would certainly say that history tells us two things are necessary. First of all, uh, and they're mutually uh, reinforcing, and if you pull one away, then the other one can't sustain it. Uh, You have to have a regime of no sustained fiscal deficits. And you have to have a credible rule for the monetary authority. And uh, the problem is that if you just have the rule be a piece of legislation, such as uh, uh, also if you just have no deficits as a piece of legislation, everyone knows a future Congress can change that. If you have something like a gold standard, which is like a constitutional rule, yeah, can it be broken? But it's much harder. And – I don't see how you can have uh, a credible no-deficit policy just based on a piece of legislation that's passed. Although having a gold standard would make it more credible just as having maybe a constitutional amendment on no deficits would make a gold standard more credible. As I say, they're mutually reinforcing. Jerry O'Driscoll is a senior fellow at the Cato
0: Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.